This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about hurricanes, toxics, and Trump's EPA. John Nichols will comment. We'll also speak with Alfred McCoy about the Pentagon's plans for wars with China and why China might win. But first, hurricane politics and climate change. Scott Pruitt, the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, says it is, quote, very, very insensitive, close quote, to discuss climate change in the midst of deadly storms. The focus, he told CNN, should be on, quote, helping people actually facing the effect of the storm, close quote. For comment, we turn to Mark Hertzgard. He's the author of seven books that have been translated into 16 languages, including Hot, Living Through the Next 50 Years on Earth. He's also the nation's investigative editor-at-large and the magazine's environment correspondent. We reached him today in San Francisco. Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks, John, for having me. Well, Scott Pruitt, who Trump appointed to head the EPA, says we should focus on helping victims of the hurricanes in Florida and Texas this week and not debating climate change. I think you have a different view. Of course the victims need to be helped. There's no debate about that. Mr. Pruitt is trying to sidestep his shameful uh, avoidance of the overwhelming scientific a message from the entire world scientific community that hurricanes like uh, Irma and Harvey before it are made much worse by global warming. And this is simple physics. This is not controversial. Uh, hot air holds more water, and what goes up must come down. So that's why you had, in the case of Harvey, the, the greatest amount of rainfall ever dropped in one place in the United States in modern record-keeping era. And likewise, Irma was the strongest hurricane ever uh, measured coming out of the Atlantic. And the real scandal here, I think, is how so many people in the political world and the media world, frankly, are still letting the GOP, the Republicans, get away with this. To even have this conversation about it being, oh, this is insensitive to talk about climate change. Nobody said that, for example, after the terrorist attacks on September 11th, 16 years ago this week, nobody said, oh, we shouldn't talk about the causes of terrorism in the aftermath of 9-11. That was a lot of what we talked about, and rightfully so. So it's the same situation now. But of course, the Republicans don't want to do this because they've all drunk the Kool-Aid about climate denial. You wrote the book on global warming and climate change. Was there anything that surprised you about Hurricane Harvey in Houston or Hurricane Irma in Florida? No, and this is what's so heartbreaking but also infuriating about these storms. 
we have been warned literally for decades that this is exactly the kind of extreme weather that global warming would intensify. In fact, going back to uh, 1988, when the NASA scientist James Hansen first testified before the United States Senate and said that uh, man-made global warming had begun, he said that these are the kinds of of extreme weather events we'll see. And then in 2008, I covered and attended, actually, in Washington, D.C., John Podesta, who would go on to become Obama's uh, transition director and who had been Bill Clinton's White House chief of staff. Uh, Podesta organized a so-called war game to try and test how the United States and other world governments could deal with the kinds of climate impacts that scientists were projecting. And here's the eerie part. (laughs) The scenario that that war game used, which was vetted as scientifically accurate by the United States' own scientists at the National Lab, here's what they envisioned. The scenario included a Category 4 hurricane in Houston, a Category (laughs) 5 hurricane in Miami, and record monsoon rains and flooding in India and Bangladesh. Well, that's exactly, Mm. to the word, what we have seen in the last three weeks. This is, that's why I say this is premeditated murder. We have known that these damages were going to come for years. When you don't act and instead you make the problem worse, which is what the Republicans have been doing, and I'm sorry to say too many Democrats as well in Washington, it's not that different from continuing, from the big tobacco continuing to sell cigarettes. We know cigarettes cause lung cancer. And for reasons that escape me, it is still technically legal to sell cigarettes in this country, but we all, I think, would agree that it's morally reprehensible. We're in a similar situation now with climate change. The science has shown very clearly that these storms are going to come. They are going to kill people. If you don't do anything about that, that's premeditated murder. Let's talk a little more about the media coverage of the hurricanes, which, of course, has been massive. We've seen those uh, reporters standing outside in gale winds with uh, water up to their knees. We've had those beautiful multicolored animated maps. We've seen the swirling images of the hurricane from far above in the weather satellite. We know an awful lot about these hurricanes now. What, what, did, what did you think of the media coverage? I think the media coverage has been good on the ground. I don't think that they needed to do all the macho stuff about standing out in the storm to prove that they're courageous journalists. But I think that the coverage has been shameful in not talking about the cause of these storms. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that global warming was the only cause for these hurricanes. Obviously, hurricanes existed long before global warming. But global warming is making these storms much worse. And yet you do not hear that, especially in the TV coverage. Uh, The New York Times, Washington Post have run the occasional article talking about climate change's involvement. NPR also did a piece on that. But if you look at the networks, they did not mention climate change uh, over the weekend, not once on ABC or NBC's coverage. And I think this includes the Weather Channel. Well, it's interesting. The Weather Channel is very, very uh, cautious about all this. And there was an interesting piece, I think, in the New York Times that uh, talked to the people at the Weather Channel about this. Why, when all of them are meteorologists, they all know perfectly well that global warming is intensifying this stuff. Why aren't they saying that? Well, it turned out, which I hadn't realized, that the demographics of the Weather Channel's audience 
skew to the right side of the political spectrum, and ah. therefore they are censoring themselves. And this is the great scandal in the media coverage here uh, of these storms. It shows that the climate denier campaign, which has been going on for decades now, is still working. It's still working, even though the science and we see with our own eyes what's happening. And it's working because even a channel like the Weather uh, Channel is censoring itself because of a political concern. Yeah. It's, it, this is not politics. This is also, by the way, what uh, other climate deniers, a uh, congressman from Houston said the same thing. I am not going to talk about the politics of this while people are in trouble. It's not politics, Congressman. It's science. It's the Republicans who have made this political by attacking Al Gore and saying that only leftists want to deal with climate change, which is so ludicrous from an international standard. Look around the world. Virtually every other government in the world, uh, with the exception of North Korea, signed the Paris Climate Accord to basically get a handle on this problem two years ago. There are a lot of those governments that are far from left-wing. Angela Merkel, who is the chancellor of Germany and arguably the, the strongest voice on this stuff uh, out of Europe, she's a conservative government. It's not politics, it's science. Uh, we've talked about Scott Pruitt on this issue. What about Florida Governor Rick Scott? He's also gotten a lot of media coverage for you know, facing the dangers and, and doing everything the state of Florida can do that, to get people out while the getting was good. Uh, what do you think about Florida Governor Rick Scott's performance over the last week? Well, if you watch television, you'd think he's the greatest hero since John Wayne. You know, it's good that a, a governor uh, keeps his cool in moments like this. But again, this is a man who literally ordered that the words climate change not be spoken by any government official in Florida. And how in the world are you going to prepare against a problem if you can't even admit that it exists? And yet, uh, here again, the, the media has let Governor Scott off the hook. A couple minutes ago, you suggested we need to hold the ultimate authors of climate catastrophes accountable for the miseries they inflict. I wonder what you have in mind here. What kind of accountability? Uh, you mentioned the, the tobacco industry is providing a kind of precedent. How do you imagine that might work? In the case of tobacco, we know that uh, <clears throat> there was the big settlement with 46 attorneys general across the United States some years ago, $206 billion charged to the tobacco industry, basically to repay states for the increased uh, hospital bills that they're facing because big tobacco gave its customers cancer and did so knowingly. Let's never forget, they knew that they were doing that, and they also knew that nicotine was addictive. They were addicting their customers to this stuff, and that's why uh, big tobacco eventually settled. But they only settled because of pressure, not just from those attorneys general, but from people on the ground, loved ones who had, had lost their loved ones to cancer. And so I think in the case of, of uh, climate change, there are parallels to that. And we are seeing them, uh, for example, in the courts, where the attorney general of New York State, Eric Schneiderman, is uh, pushing to investigate Exxon. And there are also class action lawsuits being prepared against oil companies and there's an interesting piece of research that just came out this week the scholars showed that we can now pretty well attribute the amount of climate change that hits a certain area to 
various different companies. There's only about 90 companies around the world who are responsible for the bulk of greenhouse gas emissions that are overheating the planet. So there's a number of lawsuits against them. But also, beyond this, I think that we need to be holding climate deniers accountable at the ballot box, on television, in the newspaper editorial columns. If people are voting for politicians who are climate deniers, <clears throat> they are complicit in this. And so I think that that's the, that's the, the key uh, point, whether it's at the level of talking to your neighbors, talking to your representatives in Congress, in the newspapers, what have you. Climate denial has to be made morally unacceptable in this country. And the way to do that, I think, is to, to connect the dots and show that when people die, and whether it's in Houston or in Florida or in India and Bangladesh, where let's not forget, many more people died than here in the United States. When that happens, it's not just some accident. It's not just a terrible disaster. We know what is making that happen, and we know who does it. And, you know, of course, the climate deniers are going to deny till their last breath that climate science is real. But that does not excuse them from their moral responsibility. Murder is murder, whether the murderer admits it or not. And we have to punish it as such, or we encourage more of it. What about positive steps that progressive political leaders could advocate and that we could organize around to address these issues right now? The good news on climate change is that there is no shortage of solutions. Read the new book, Drawdown, which was, in fact, reviewed in The Nation, and I have a, an article in there, too. It lists 80, 80 technologies and practices that can be done today that are being done but could be scaled up today, making money but also dramatically reducing emissions and even pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. That's what we need to do. There's all kinds of proposals to do this. I proposed a global green deal years ago. Naomi Klein has the LEAP program in Canada. There's other kinds of programs like that, including in the, uh, the Democratic Caucus in the United States Congress. So those are the kinds of things that we need. In particular, though, we've got to get politicians to understand that climate change is not just another issue. It is the issue that is going to decide whether our civilization survives on this planet. They need to give it much greater priority and realize that it's a political winner. It creates more jobs, not less, when you invest in solar rather than coal. It creates healthier communities, not uh, more dangerous communities, when you invest in sea level rise and proper zoning so that people are not in harm's way. Mark Hertzgard connects the dots. Read his book, Hot, Living Through the Next 50 Years on Earth. Read him at thenation.com. Mark, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Florida has been the focus of headlines for the past week, but Houston is still facing a serious threat after Hurricane Harvey there. Areas around Houston are still facing a toxic soup of chemicals, oil, and E. coli bacteria left behind by the flooding, especially the toxic chemicals that have been leaking from Superfund sites around Houston. There are 13 of these heavily contaminated former industrial zones that were flooded or damaged by Hurricane Harvey. 
dealing with the toxic contamination of hurricane floodwaters is one of the jobs of the Environmental Protection Agency, which was established by executive order of President Nixon in 1970 and then made a permanent part of the federal government by Congress. For a report on the EPA under Trump's administrator, Scott Pruitt, We turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation and author of the book Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, A Field Guide to the Most Dangerous People in America. It's just published by Nation Books. John Nichols, welcome back. It's an honor to be with you. Well, tell us about Trump's EPA. Look, the Environmental Protection Agency has always been uh, a place where the right has sought to play politics. You know, it's not like under Reagan you had perfect leadership there or or, uh, under the Bushes, uh, although somewhat better. With Scott Pruitt, though, you have something different altogether. This is not about Republican or Democrat. This is not about conservative or liberal. Scott Pruitt, the head of the EPA, former attorney general of Oklahoma, is someone who really throughout his political career has been essentially uh, an ally – spokesman for, combatant on behalf of polluters, big corporations, climate change denialists. I mean, this guy is the sort of person who you might see as the chief critic of the EPA, and he sued it many, many times as attorney general. He's been visceral in his attacks on the agency before he came into it. Uh, But but even the most right-wing president, I think, in the past would never put someone like this in charge because he clearly is uh, interested in dialing the agency down, making it less than it should be. Now, does that mean that the EPA, which has thousands of great employees, really dedicated people, people giving their lives to, to this uh, agency, and in some places, I think I could be fair to say, see it as a cause as much as just work. Mm-hmm. Does that mean the EPA is not going to be there in Texas trying to do good things? No, it does not. There will be people on the ground uh, working really hard to address these toxic issues, these chemical issues, the host of it. But what it means at the, at the broader and higher level, and as we have more and more storms like this, is that under Pruitt, the EPA is being cut in size, in staffing, in focus, in energy. Uh, he himself is doing all sorts of internal things to d- diminish and undermine where it goes. And so I, I don't think we're going to have the level of commitment and, and energy that we've had in the past. And I would just counsel on one thing, too. You're correct to focus on these immediate chemical and toxic issues. These are big deal issues that are going to have to be dealt with fast, and, and it's going to cost a lot of money. And so that commitment has to be there. But you should also understand that climate scientists will tell us that uh, climate change isn't causing hurricanes, but what it is doing is making hurricanes much worse. Bigger yeah. storm surges, <clears throat> yes. more flooding, flooding that then takes water into industrial zones, into refinery zones, places that water historically didn't get. And as a climate change denialist, as a climate, climate change skeptic, uh, Scott Pruitt is one of those people who suggests that we don't, we don't have to be you know, factoring this into the mix. And that's, in my opinion, madness, because what we learn from Hurricane Harvey, what we seem to be learning from Hurricane Irma, is that uh, these storms are are going places. They're bigger. They're more uh, violent than what we've had in the past. We need to adjust. We need to adjust our rules, and we may need to make adjustments 
that multinational corporations and energy companies may not like. And every evidence with Scott Pruitt is that kind of adjustment is not one he is inclined toward. So he's a dangerous person to have in this position at this time. Well, in addition to these uh, 13 heavily contaminated Superfund sites, there was also the most dramatic event uh, of EPA concern was that explosion on Thursday morning at a Houston-based chemical plant. Just to give an example of Scott Pruitt's leadership of the EPA, he went on TV and said, quote, there are no concentrations of concern for toxic chemicals, close quote, emanating from that plant. This is the one in Crosby, Texas, owned by the comp French company Arkema. Uh, Pruitt said he agreed with the company, you'll be surprised Shocked to hear this, that uh, the chemical fires should just be allowed to burn themselves out. In the meantime, residents within 1.5 miles of the area had been evacuated, and of the original first uh, responders, 15 had to be hospitalized after inhaling chemical smoke from the nearly two tons of organic, organic peroxides burning inside storage trailers. This is the area that Scott Pruitt said had was of no concern. There was no concern for toxic chemicals. I mean, look, it's a nightmare scenario. If you were, if you were making a film about the corruption of government, you know, a, a fictional dramatic film about the corruption of government, you would have, you know, a, a corporate stooge take over an agency at a time when you had, you know, like these huge public health and public safety crises playing out and say incredibly absurd and wrongheaded things. You know, one other thing that Scott Pruitt did along this way um, was early on, you know, right after Harvey hit, he, he was doing interviews where he was suggesting that the media was alarmist or the media was being, quote unquote, opportunistic when it interviewed scientists about this stuff. And then the agency itself actually, a spokesperson for the agency actually criticized scientists for speaking up and saying, you know, these storm surges are getting bigger. We need to be prepared for this stuff. It, I wrote a piece where I said that for Scott Pruitt, you know, climate denial or climate change denial is, is mission critical. It's always the thing that goes to the front. And, and I believe that to be true, but at a, at a deeper and more fundamental sense, it is defending corporations saying you agree with these multinational corporations saying you you know you think it's going to be fine that's not the job of the EPA the job of the EPA is to say the speak the painful truth that sometimes in fact often corporations don't do what they're supposed to do and that's why we need to regulate them and it's why we need to challenge them especially in emergency situations to to get in there pour resources in do what has to be done I am incredibly unsettled by the fact that he is the head of this agency at this time. I still counsel that there are great employees there, people uh, who really are doing the job. But the future terrifies me because, in this regard because I just don't see Scott Pruitt taking the EPA in the right direction. Well, another front of, of uh, conflict right now has to do with the public's right to know what the dangerous chemicals are that are being released into the water and the air as a result of the explosions and flooding of the Superfund sites. Uh, here there's been a battle with the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, which said that a detailed list of the chemicals stored inside the facility that exploded the Arkema factory um, outside of Houston uh, is not public information. 
And uh, this is uh, the Arkema's position. It's supported by Scott Pruitt. Uh, their line is, the public's right to know is in conflict with the public's right to be secure. They're talking here about terrorist attack. Their argument has been that, well, if the terrorists know the dangerous chemicals that are located on any particular Superfund site, that will make them more vulnerable to attack. I wonder what you make of this argument that the public's right to be secure from terrorist attacks should should supersede the public's right to know what's been released into the environment around Houston. Well, the data tells us that um, that we're much more likely, as Americans, um, to be threatened by by <laughs> chemicals and toxics than we are by by somebody from who wants to do something horrible. I, I look. I understand the the desire to strike a smart balance. Right. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is, I would imagine that somebody wanting to do terrible damage, if you just had a place that that, like Google chemical companies and find out where their sites are, whatever chemicals there, you probably got a sense that it's something bad. Um, And so I find it on the surface to be a deeply troubling, uh, you know, kind of excuse making here, especially in an emergency situation. But I also want to I'm actually going to connect this out from this Texas agency, which I know is Texas based. Uh, out to Pruitt. You know, Pruitt has a long history of resisting Freedom of Information Act requests and resisting the the desire of citizens to know what is being done in their name but without their informed consent. And I, I actually write about this a great deal in the book because right before he was confirmed, a judge ordered the documents he had resisted releasing be put out. Mitch McConnell rushed, rushed the confirmation through before the actual release of the documents. Mm. And, you know, what we learn is that, by and large, the information that government agencies have should, become, should be information that we have, right? They, they operate in our name. And if it threatens our health and safety and our children, we ought to know if we're living next to horrible, dangerous chemicals. Now, that does not mean that you don't take smart security steps. But frankly, if you've got a multinational corporation with a lot of dangerous chemicals piled up in a place close to where people live, maybe your regulation ought to put that someplace far from where the people live. And then, of course, you secure the site, and of course, you make sure that it's not vulnerable to attack and things of that nature. But where does the duty begin and where does it end? I would argue the duty of an environmental uh, agency at the state or federal level is to protect human beings from environmental dangers. Scott Pruitt is just one of the dozens of people profiled in your book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. The book makes a bigger point. We focus so much of our attention and activism on Trump himself because he's so outrageous and unbearable. But you suggest we need a, a deeper, a broader view of what's happening. And the case of Scott Pruitt and the EPA shows that the problem is not just Donald Trump. Scott Pruitt, as you say, has been getting to work on destroying the EPA for years. This job is the capstone of his career. He doesn't need Trump to tell him what to do, and that's true for many other members of his administration. You can read about it all in the book Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, A Field Guide to the Most Dangerous People in America, just published by Nation Books. The author, of course, is our own John Nichols. John, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. 
now it's time for something completely different. The Pentagon's plans for techno-weapons and space warfare and what it may mean for America's global domination in the next decade or two. For that, we turn to Alfred McCoy. He's the J.R.W. Smale Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the author of many books. His new one is titled In the Shadow of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power. It's published this week by Haymarket and Dispatch Books. He's a regular at Tom Dispatch and a contributor to The Nation magazine. We reached him today in Madison. Alfred McCoy, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be there. Well, during the 2012 presidential debates, Mitt Romney complained that, quote, our Navy is smaller now than at any time since 1917. What was Obama's response to that? Well, President Obama, as we all know, is a very polite and considerate man. And he got about as nasty as I've ever seen him get in a public address. He was withering. He said, Governor, this is not a game of battleships. He said, we don't use bayonets anymore. We don't use battleships. He said, it's a question of what are our capabilities. He said, we need to start thinking about cyberspace. We need to start thinking about space. And actually, Obama had been doing a good deal more than thinking about both cyberspace and space warfare. Obama picked up on long-term trends inside the Pentagon, and he accelerated the shift away from more conventional arenas of combat, which is to say air, land, sea, and is pushing us into these two new domains of conflict, cyberspace, the cables beneath the sea, and aerospace and space, the skies and the exosphere above the Earth. Obama presided over the establishment of the U.S. Cyber Command. Under his watch, the Defense Department declared Cyber Command to be an operational domain, that's to say, just like air, land, and sea, and we've seen how sensitive that is. He also accelerated the shift beyond conventional manned aircraft to, to drones. And under Obama, they went from something like 71 hours a year of flying time. By 2009, they were clocking 250,000 uh, hours. By the uh, end of Obama's second term, we were up to an armada of over 7,000 drones, and we were launching an amazing array. We have very sophisticated uh, surveillance drones that can fly over hostile airspace. The Navy has developed a, a, a drone that's going to be operational in a couple of years that can actually fly off uh, the decks of aircraft carriers. They've crossed that threshold. Uh, and the, um, the flight boss of the Navy says that the integration of these drones are going to extend the range of operational aircraft. They're also carry, capable of carrying weapons. The big question is, who is this war going to be fought against. It's hard to imagine that they think these massive new high-tech weapons are going to defeat uh, a, a low-tech opponent like ISIS. Could it be China that they have in mind for a future war? Well, first of all, they, they do make them part of the U.S. strike against so-called terrorists. I mean, for example, President Trump launched the most intensive single drone attack in Yemen, uh, already. So we're using drones uh, across borders in remote areas. They've become a chief weapon against terrorism. But we're also developing uh, space drones and space technology for a future war against China. Look, uh, the, the Pentagon, 
very well-informed think tanks like the RAND Corporation, Santa Monica, California, which has a close, long-standing relationship with the Pentagon, the various, uh, the various branches of the U.S. government, everybody thinks that if there is a, a war on the horizon, a major war, it's going to be a war with China. And in fact, the RAND Corporation, which is a very famous think tank and very close to the Air Force, created by the Air Force for the Air Force, now for the whole Defense Department, they actually did a report called War with China. And they, they looked at the array of forces, both these domains I've been talking about, cyberspace, space, and then air, land, sea, and they concluded that in a war with China, the United States might not win. Now, that is phenomenal. Actually, China's strategy is not to confront us across the full spectrum of all five domains of conflict, air, land, sea, cyberspace, space. China's being very strategic. I think what they're con- con- confronting us over is cyberspace, because China's ahead of us in supercomputing. For the past seven years, China's had the world's fastest supercomputers, and they now have more supercomputers than we have. The other thing I think is they've gone for more sophisticated satellite technology, uh, the, the aerospace dimension. China is developing the photon satellite, the photon communication satellite. So instead of sending microwave signals from ground to air, which can be hacked and compromised, they're transmitting light through photons, and they're experimenting with uh, launching the world's first photon-linked uh, satellite system. If they do that, they will have a satellite system that cannot be hacked. Meanwhile, we're using older technology which can be hacked. All right, And indeed, our drones can be hacked. Iran, which doesn't have any nearwhere near the technological sophistication of China, a few years ago, hacked the most sophisticated drone in our arsenal, they actually captured a RQ-170 CIA drone, and they landed it inside Iran and heavily publicized it, because it turns out that the GPS signals, which are transmitted from satellites, are easy to capture and compromise. Ah. So China's edge in satellite security could be critical. So my hypothesis is that when World War III is fought, it's going to be fought in cyberspace and in space, there are going to be very few human casualties, uh, and that China could very likely win because they're faster than we are with supercomputing, which is how you do the, the codes and code breaking, how you do the hacking and counterhacking, how you secure yourself from hacking and how you hack. And second, they seem to be getting a march on us in satellites. They were the first to establish in 2007 the Chinese shot one of their own satellites out of a out of the out of space, 500 miles above the Earth with a missile. So this is coming. This is coming. And the United States has, by the way, created the world's first space drone, the X-37B. We launched it in 2010. We continued those tests for two years. It was, its performance was flawless. It's then since disappeared. I, I suspect that we're developing a missile-armed space drone that's ready to knock out China's satellites in the sky. So the war that's going to be fought will be fought in space, it's going to be fought in cyberspace, and it will result in the, the blinding of our major strategic forces. That will be the game, is, is blinding and knocking out command, control, and communications via space and cyberspace. And China could very readily win. In your new book, in the shadows of the American century, you explicitly compare uh, American hegemony 
to what the hegemony of China would be like if China were to win this war in 2030. How do you compare these two hegemonies? Yes, look, the United States did something unprecedented in the history of world empires. We added at the acme of the apex of our power back in the 1950s. We created an international order grounded on principles of law, avoidance of war, and respect for human rights. So at the end of World War II, when our power, when we were lords of the earth, with uh, Europe in ruins, Japan defeated, China roiled in revolution, we controlled 50% of the global economy, we had the most powerful military scattered all across the planet, and what did we do? We created the United Nations. We followed that uh, with the creation of the General Agreement on Tra Trade and Tariffs, now the World Trade Organization. Uh, we established the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank to promote development in a well-managed global economy. Mind you, we've betrayed our own principles many times, but we still stand for those principles of the rule of law internationally and for the promotion of human rights, which means also in this day women's rights and the rights of gay and transsexual <clears throat> people. Now, China is a very different kind of empire. It's a rail politique empire, an empire of mutual convenience. Uh, they have very limited commitment, if much at all, to human rights, to women's rights, to the rule of law. So I think China's hegemony, if it comes to that, is going to be power and profit without principles. And we've had power and profit, but we've also had principles. We've betrayed them, we've compromised them, but we've kind of worked to advance them fitfully, flawed way, but, but we've done it nonetheless. So it's going to be a darker, I think, more dismal kind of international order that would emerge from a China-dominated world. And yet it seems paradoxical for progressives to defend the American empire. What, do you, what are your thoughts about that? Look, uh, the Harvard historian Niall Ferguson, who used to work on empires before he went on to other things, said he counted there something like, he said, I've counted 79 empires in world history dating back over 4,000 years. In other words, empires are a constant, okay? So uh, let's say, let's go back to World War II. Who would you favor winning the war? The Nazi Empire in Europe allied with the Japanese Empire in Asia, which was actually history's biggest empire, or the emerging American Empire? Well, personally, I think the world is a better place because the American Empire and the British Empire in alliance defeated the Axis empires. And how can I put it? Every human organization runs, you know, at the at the most benign way possible and the most malign way possible. Empires are inherently contradictory. They're inherently cruel. They're inherently inequitable. But within this constant form of global governance, the U.S. empire has been more beneficent than most. And what's likely to succeed us could be much, much worse. Alfred McCoy, his new book, published this week, is titled In the Shadows of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power. You can read an excerpt at thenation.com now. Alfred McCoy, thanks so much for talking with us today. John, thank you very much.
Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, Dave talks about the politics of stadium construction and the toll that publicly funded stadiums have taken on Houston, where the city has spent its tax dollars on a stadium instead of on infrastructure that might help when things like Hurricane Harvey hit. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edge of sports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.